The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So inevitably, we, for those of you who have been on retreat before you, or maybe those of you who have been on many retreats, you know this experience where you run into someone who you haven't seen very long and somebody who isn't practicing or doesn't do retreats, and they say, oh, what have you been up to? You know, like, oh, what a delicious experience. They look at you with blissed out eyes. And you kind of go like, oh, you have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you've probably uh, been in this territory with your heart. I know I've been in this territory with mine. Just getting in touch with all of the unpleasant habits of heart. So much of what we do on retreat is learn to embrace, to love, to care for these moments of struggle, these moments of suffering, these moments of dukkha, these moments of tightness. We come to retreat with plenty of good intentions, and the next thing we know, we're falling asleep, busy judging someone or something, wanting the food to be better, wanting our neighbor to stop breathing so loudly. And even when we, at the beginning of a sit, connect with our intentions to just be here and accept the moment as it is. Before we know it, we're thinking we're going to die because of the knee pain or back pain or whatever the body pain is. And these are the relatively easy challenges. They're also the big ones, the overwhelm, the terror, or the rage, grief. And you've all already articulated so beautifully some of these experiences It was easy as I was preparing what I might say to reflect back on what you've said and see like, oh yeah, the wisdom that the Buddha had in making an interdependent relationship between monastics and lay people. Because it's easy to appreciate your courage and generosity and your sharings in a small group and then want to give something back tonight that might be useful to you. So we come to retreat wanting freedom, some flavor of freedom. And what we find are these moments of seemingly, seemingly non-freedom. I say seemingly because, as Mark was saying last night, the path to freedom is not on the other side of this. That we can experience at some later date when there's a better me, a more healthy me, or something like that. But moments of freedom are right here and available to us in this moment, in the middle of this difficult experience, this tightness in the heart, this pain, this clinging. You probably know this very common, commonly told story of when the Buddha was teaching and he's talking to his monks and he holds up a handful of leaves and says something like, monks, what is more, the, all the leaves in the forest or the leaves in my hand? And they say, or someone says, well, of course, the leaves in the forest. And he says... <coughs> 
something that points to how he knows a lot of things, but the things that he teaches are a lot fewer. They're only the necessary ones. And he says this, And what have I taught? This is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is the cessation of stress. This is the path of practice leading to the cessation of stress. This is what I have taught. And why have I taught these things? Because they are connected with the goal, relate to the rudiments of the holy life, and lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. This is why I have taught them. This promise of freedom, this connecting with dukkha, this understanding dukkha, this knowing of dukkha, the promise of freedom that is the result of that. And every time I read that, I feel so moved by that, you know, the strength of that response. And dukkha is a unifying human experience, isn't it? We can think about all of the ways that dukkha expresses itself in our lives, the fear, the anxiety, the wanting this, not wanting that. And we have to face it. It's not easy to be with suffering, no matter how, you know, how poignant the Buddha's words are. The experience of connecting with the pain of the heart, the mind, is not easy. And often when we talk about our intentions, we generally say things that point to wanting greater freedom in our lives, wanting to know freedom. But I think what we actually mean is that we want calm, or we want the pleasantness that comes from practice. In fact, when we think we have when we have these experiences, we think we're on the right track. And what tends to happen when we have when we feel that tug of the heart, that unpleasantness of dukkha, then we think something's gone wrong. We don't want to feel it. We take the experience of dukkha so personally. But practice is precisely about learning to trust the experience of dukkha. Trust that there's something to see and learn right in the middle of this. We actually need to know dukkha. It's necessary. And we don't have to avoid dukkha or get rid of it to taste freedom. We can understand, we can develop wisdom. This is the path to developing wisdom right in the middle of the difficult moments of our lives. And these moments, these are the moments that we see the truth of change. We, We see that everything that arises passes away. We start to understand nature, the experience of anatta, not self. That teaching that reminds us that there are causes and conditions that support every arising. And every arising will bear fruit of some kind and lead to the next moment. 
that it's not actually personal, even though it feels that way. But this, what we're experiencing, is actually a result of something else. It's a natural, lawful arising. And this is a quote from Tralag Rinpoche. It was posted in The Lion's Roar. The person who comes to a full understanding of dukkha and how to work with it can be called noble. Such nobility arises not from escaping suffering, but rather from having fully understood the truth of suffering. We first accept the reality of suffering in all its forms. We stop denying it. Then we can come to appreciate what might be called the redemptive quality of suffering. We do not aspire to attain enlightenment in spite of suffering. We work to attain enlightenment because of suffering. So learning to trust dukkha and the intimacy and our capacity to be intimacy with dukkha is a way to taste freedom. And even so, just for an example, how many of us have gotten frustrated because we've caught ourselves being sleepy? Yeah. Right. I found myself in this predicament last night. But why? Because this experience with sleepiness is just a form of nature making itself known. And if we think about it, numbing out in some way, disconnecting from experience, disconnecting from our lives, becoming uninterested or disinterested from this, whatever this is, is a total normal habit. Think of how often we practice that habit. Even those of even all of us. We watch TV to escape. We do other things to escape. We indulge in food and sex and all kinds of media. We use alcohol. I mean, all very common ways that human beings try to numb out. Try to just, so it doesn't make sense to expect that when we sit down with an intention of our heart to connect and not be sleepy or not have our minds be dull in any way, that we would go like, oh yeah, that, those, that habit would naturally still kick in. Right? So that's just one way of orienting in the direction of right view to understand some of these moments of our lives, like totally normal and natural moments of our lives. Going dull, just for an example, is a reasonable response when we don't have any other options. But what we're doing here is training the heart to use sensitivity and intimacy instead of these other options so that we're not dependent on being outside of our lives while we're in our lives. We don't want to have as our only option to check out. All of us are here in part. We might have many other reasons, but generally we're here because we want to be able to be right in the middle of our lives and not have to avoid or deny or dip out for any reason. We want to be there with the joys and the sorrows, the grief, the moments of grief and loss. 
So we're training in the sensitivity so that we have other options. We have a much better and more reliable, the only reliable option. And what's interesting about practice is that this understanding of dukkha, this understanding of these moments that we may be frustrated by, these moments of numbing out, for example, dull or sleepiness, whatever we want to call it, sloth and torpor, moments, is that understanding how natural it is for the heart to go to that strategy is a way of undermining that strategy. So connecting with, being willing to connect with even the numbness is a way of undermining the numbness, right? Because that Numbness doesn't have much room to grow with intimacy. It doesn't make sense to live there. And that numbness is just one example, but there are so many confused strategies that this heart will employ because it wants to feel safe. And it's good to know what some of them are, some of the most obvious ones, so that we can start to recognize them in practice. And as we can begin to recognize them and see them, this has been the case for me, over and over and over, it almost becomes funny. Like, oh my gosh, you're doing this again. It's not quite as easy to take it so personally. It's not as easy to beat myself up and go like, oh, you're sleepy again. Like, of course. Sometimes that will happen, but it becomes a little easier to see these experiences that come and go, that move as just movements of energy that flow through the heart, strategies that the heart uses, confused strategies, because it thinks it needs to be safe in this way. So all of the flavors of wanting or not wanting these high, high energy states of restlessness and worry or low energy states of sloth and torpor and the experience of doubt is what are known as the five common hindrances. So remembering that orienting in the direction of right view is remembering that each time we sit down with the best of intentions to connect with the breath and find ourselves falling asleep, or each time we sit down to be with the body and receive the sensations of the body and know them just as sensations, and then end up hating something or wanting to get out of here because this pain is too overwhelming, that we can remember that these strategies or ways of relating to life are just attempts to help us. We don't have to demonize even these strategies. And they're actually protecting the self from annihilation. You can think about it like that. And it's true that there's no self, but in these moments, we can actually feel the pull of self. These moments when there's a, a storm in the heart, a storm in the mind, something that's hugging, clinging, painful tightening. 
we can feel this as like a self that's being known. Oh, this is a false sense of self being known right here and now. And we can also learn to notice their impermanent nature. And in fact, it makes sense that these storms arise in relationship to the body, like falling asleep, want, intending to follow the breath, know the breath, connect with the breath, develop some continuity and collectedness with the connection with the breath right here in the body, and yet being disinterested in the breath, not wanting the breath, being bored with the breath, or that experience I gave, or that example that I gave of body pain, knee pain, back pain, you know, having the strong intention to know the sensations of the body, to connect with the body, and yet resisting these natural sensations in the body. It makes sense that there would be this sense of self that develops around those experiences because the body is really our closest identifying force. This is how we misperceive through the body is how we misperceive that there is a self here. We misunderstand that the eyes are just doing their activity, that their ears are just taking on their activity. And we think it's really personal, that there's a Shelly here that's doing this. This is my finger. This is my hand. When we understand a sense of self, it really feels so local for that to be right here with the body. So these deluded or neurotic habits are the heart's confused attempts at finding safety. And leaning into the pain in our hearts is really counterintuitive. So it doesn't come easily. It kind of goes against the stream of our conditioning, both individually and culturally here in the West. Our Western capitalism, consumeristic culture kind of leads me to want to consume more, not just consume, but devour We just are uh, beyond the Christian Christmas holiday. And my family, I was raised Christian, and my family in California are really strong, strongly devoted Christians. And even in my family, that makes a strong effort to remember the history and teachings of Jesus Christ, there's such a pull for presence and buying and having and claiming to be the center of it all. Our earth, our earth is tapped, running out of resources. So we need, it's not just a good idea, not just an add-on to our life, 
to learn how to be intimate with experience, to learn how to feel into the pain of our hearts and the relationship to each other and the earth and our communities, but it's a matter of survival. It's the only strategy that seems to make any sense. And yet the most accessible models of humanness are not very good ones. I don't know if you heard any of the impeachment hearings. You probably did. It was on. And I was, day after day, I had NPR on the radio when I was driving here and there. And I found, like, after a number of days, just feeling kind of depressed. And I was like, huh, interesting shift of energy in my life. I'm not quite sure what this is about. And then after having this kind of understanding that the mood was low, the next time I got in the car and turned on the radio, I noticed just that it's so depressing. And no matter which side of the aisle you align with, we could probably all agree that it was a display of deception and denial, all these misleading statements. It was not an example of connecting with intimacy of the heart. If that's what we were listening, you know, if that's, that would have been a hopeful thing to listen to something like that, but we would have heard a lot of fear in the room probably. We would have heard a lot of giving voice to fear or worry, maybe. Maybe we would have even heard some tears. I'm so scared. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what else to do but cling to power this way. So with all of this conditioning in a particular direction, And that's just you know, what's represented in our culture. But we also have our family histories. And it's just we've had a lot of practice at denying the experience of pain, of finding some way to get away from it, to get out of here, to not connect with it. So our practice, this most trustworthy practice, is really against the stream of our conditioning. We're practicing letting go and setting things down instead of picking them up. We're practicing getting close and doing that with a lot of patience and love, letting ourselves touch these deep areas of woundedness in our hearts, give voice to them in community with others, expressing a lot of vulnerability, that's really against the stream work. And so we need to remember that all the time when we get frustrated or impatient with our own hearts, when we find ourselves falling asleep or experiencing aversion. It's all lawful. It's nature expressing itself like this. It takes regularity of practice, stability, to see this body as nature, to see this mind as nature, to see dukkha as nature, as just an expression of causes and conditions. 
I said that I was sleepy last night. I was actually, I haven't been sleeping well, and so it didn't made some sense that I was sleepy, and yet I, I didn't really realize the kind of resistance to the sleepiness that was there until late, later in the day, in the evening. And then at some point, there was this understanding that, oh, you're fighting this, and it doesn't really help. And so at that point, and for the next several hours, there was just a a willingness to allow dullness of mind, to allow sleepiness, to experience the nodding off and coming back. And it wasn't until that like heart let go of its fighting the sleepiness that there was a capacity to see the beliefs that were underlying that difficulty. And they were like, oh, you should be better than this. You should, you're, you're not really, what will people think of you falling asleep? You know, you really, you're not going to, show how much you care about Dhamma this way. It was amazing to watch these flurry of, this flurry of beliefs and views that were right beneath the surface. But it took a lot of patience to go there and connect, for the heart to begin to trust that it's okay, it doesn't need to be afraid of this experience. And the resisting is exhausting and counterproductive, causing a lot more tension, but the heart doesn't know this. It has to learn it and undo a lot of other learning telling us to avoid and resist. It takes time before the heart knows that we don't have to get rid of anything, but everything is workable. It's our practice to learn to meet it with love and patience. And this is what practice has taught me over the last, oh, I don't even know how long. It's that kind of fearless quality of being able to say yes to all of it, to all of life. And even the big stuff like anger and rage and fear and terror. And I know I've had moments where those experiences have all come and gone. And so I can say with a lot of faith that It's possible to meet it all. But we need patient training, and we need to be able to employ all the strategies to support the heart's opening, capacity to be intimate, including allowing the appropriate distance. So anxiety, for example, is something that I've worked with in my life for a long time. And with too much force, too much demand to be intimate with anxiety, it's very easy to tip into a panic attack. And maybe you know this experience. It's similarly, it's very easy for fear to become terror if there's too much demand there. Right? So it's more like a gentle touching and asking what's needed, how close can I get, What do you need from me? Really honoring the force of this habit that has been developed over a long period of time. 
I was on retreat once, quite some time ago now. I was out at Prairie, ha- Prairie Farm for, with my, by myself for a few weeks. And um, there was just a lot of fear in the heart at that period. And there was difficulty. I was having a lot of difficulty being with it. But there was enough faith already in practice at that point that I was willing to try a lot of different things. And so experimenting with, well, you know, what allows this heart to stay balanced and connect with the truth of this experience without tipping into overwhelm? And trying all the things, walking, sitting, lying down, eyes open, chanting, movement, all the things, right? And the thing that I found that worked was lying in my room on the bed with enough comfort, a nice mattress, with the window slightly open so the breeze was coming in. It was beautiful out there at that point. Breeze, I still remember the breeze blowing in on my face. And there was enough kind of agitation in the heart that I didn't fall asleep like that, but I would just lie on my back on the bed with all of these comforts, and then the heart could be with the fear that came and went, the fear that came and went without tipping into overwhelm. So employing all the strategies, being willing to utilize comfort and pleasant experience to support that training, training the heart, that intimacy and sensitivity is a better strategy, is a more trustworthy strategy than denying or needing to get out of there, needing to avoid. And with each of the, that, those moments that the heart says, oh, it's this possible, that faith, that confidence, that everything is worth, workable really grows just enough. Stories. I like stories. I'm going to tell a couple more. <laughs> About a year ago, I had some health challenges, and uh, there was a lot of, again, a lot of anxiety at that time around, you know, just reconciling this aging with this aging body, which we all are doing in every moment. I just happened to come off of a long retreat, and so there was a lot of sensitivity and this back injury and just set things in motion in a very interesting way. And I remember I was uh, talking to Eugene Cash, and some of you might have might know his teaching. He's a Dharma teacher in California. He had a terrible bike accident and a long recovery. And he talks about, and I think his, uh, Pam Weiss is his wife, and she talks about, too, that he's a different person now than he was then. And so I was talking to him about health and healing and working with the body. And he was really direct with me. He said, you need to get in touch with anger because it's your life force energy. Learn to get in touch with anger. And that's not the orientation that we usually have, right, as practitioners. We think anger is something to avoid or prefer calm over the strong energy of anger. But as I was working with that instruction and practicing connecting, I could really see, start to see that anger was the strong energy. It's volatile, 
but it's just a strong energy and not something that really needed to be feared. In fact, it seemed really closely related to the experience of fierce love that I knew. This is a great book. Um, it's called Time to Stand Up, an Engaged Buddhist Manifesto for Our Earth, written by Tanisara, another wonderful Dharma teacher. And I really appreciate this, what she says about working with anger. She says, an aspect of the wise, unchained feminine is transmuted anger into fierce truth-telling and protective compassion. Rather than shaping herself into a pretzel in service of distorted and immature power, which leaves her muted, manipulative, frustrated, damaged, and damaging, women can recognize the primordial root of luminous, fierce compassion through the liquid fire experienced in their bodies, demonized by the word anger. This energy distilled into clarity and wisdom burns away the dross of our self-seeking desires and fears. It cuts through a primary split we carry into our life as Dharma practitioners, which is our subtle addiction to transcendence and calm states, based not in maturity, but but on our original traumas that are to do with separation, vulnerability, and fear. I appreciate that because it really points to the possibility of using that energy that we often or tend to want to demonize, that we call anger and tend to want to demonize, but the possibility when we can learn to be intimate with something that feels relatively unpleasant. It can feel energizing, and you might know this for yourself how anger feels, but for me it feels energizing and unpleasant, like the energy is too much. But that capacity to watch and be intimate with that experience of anger, watch that energy move to be what to support its movement can really allow us the capacity to harness the good, the usefulness, that life force energy and use it for something that supports our connectedness. So let's also get curious about resiliency. What leads us to trust sensitivity when life gets hard? What do we call on to remember to continue to find a workable way forward? And like that experience being on retreat and having a lot of fear, just the faith, that curiosity, that faith and curiosity, back and forth, curiosity, faith, it's not just, those weren't the only two experiences being known, but that enough faith that allowed me to keep trying, to keep being interested in the possibility that this too might be workable. So one of my consistent strategies is to ask for help, not literal help, 
but like borrowing faith. My grandfather was a, was a Southern Baptist preacher. And so when I am in the middle of a dukkha moment, and things feel really hard, either in formal practice or in my daily life, it feels really natural to bring him to mind. And it's not those moments of him preaching that really come to mind, but two very simple experiences, two moments. I remember being a really small child in his living room. My mom is one of six, and there were lots of grandkids. And so the house is a small house, very full. And he would go to his chair in the living room, kind of kick himself back, and with a lot of samadhi, study the Bible. And I remember being like probably six or seven and just trying to understand that. What is that that allows him to just tune out all the chaos, all the children running, making noise, the clanking of dishes and flurry of activity to connect in that way? And it was the same thing when I got older and he would come to our church, which was a Presbyterian church and not quite as lively as a Southern Baptist congregation. (laughs) When he would come to our church for performances or whatever, and I would sit next to him, and in a, a very kind of modest way, a humble way, when something resonated with him, he would say, Amen. But it wasn't a I-need-to-be-noticed kind of way, but it was that deep, connecting way. And then I remember being a teenager and sitting next to him when he did that and remembering back to that moment, to those moments as a younger child and thinking that there's some similarity here, that deep faith that allows him to just be right there and something to move the heart and that capacity to be in, in the middle of chaos in his family, in his home, in the world, and still be able to touch something that's deep like that, something sustaining. And it's that same force that each of us employ in our practice that we have called on again and again, even over the past couple of days, to continue on. And in the suttas, there are many stories. And the beauty of some of these stories for me has been this, to pull out the essence of the teaching and also to understand some of what the characters in these stories employed to... be able to connect. And so again, like I said, one of my most common strategies and easy strategy during moments of dukkha, moments of tightness, is to ask for help. So often I'll remember some of these stories and 
a character and kind of the energetic force that I found useful in the telling of that story to bring to heart and mind as a remembrance, not as something that was out there outside of me, but actually as a way of taking refuge, that this capacity to wake up is right here in this heart. That in these moments of remembering, for example, Sujata, and what she offered the Buddha, or the Buddha-to-be, on the night of his awakening, is right here. That capacity is right here in this heart. And if you don't know that story, the Buddha was, I think as Mark mentioned, was doing these extreme ascetic practices at the time, and with others, and transcending the body, eating very little, emaciated. And Sujata had been watching him from afar and offered him a bowl of porridge. And it shifted everything in that moment. The Buddha learned how to embrace pleasant experience, connect with non-demanding forces, generosity, earth, body. And it supported his understanding, the deep understanding and realization that there's something, the middle, the middle way is better than the extreme end. And so Sujata is somebody that I'll bring to mind. She's not told, you know, there's this not much, and women are... Uh, Underrated in the suttas. <laughs> and so there's not a lot um, about Sujata, but what has been told is not very favorable. You know, I've heard her, others depict her as a prostitute, or you know, she doesn't get a lot of love. <laughs> but that generosity of just that offering, right, even if it's such a beautiful offering, to be able to connect with that heart that cares and really believes or really trusts that there's some value in this, that, that wisdom that knew that there's some value in nourishing the body, of taking care of the body. And even, you know, this guy who, and all the, the trend of the time was towards these ascetic practices, that she was willing, bold enough to go, here, sweetie, eat, this might help you. So I love that, that boldness, that willingness to do her own thing and follow her own path, trust herself. And there's another story, the Angulimala Sutta. Some of you probably know that one. There's a lot of ways to talk about that story, but it's a story of this person who in Gulimala, um, who killed 999 people and wore their pinky finger on a necklace. There's a lot of backstory to that. But at this one point in the story, you don't know if all these details are true, but again, pull out the essence and the, the kind of force of goodness that's there that helps me in moments when I need it. Maybe that'll be true for you too. 
But so there's a lot of backstory. But at one point, the king was like, "Well, we got to stop this guy, and send out want to send out was going to send out uh, whatever troops. I don't know what they were, people, <laughs> to stop Angulimala from all of this destruction he was causing, and." And Gulimala's mother, knowing that he could potentially kill her, went after him. Now, it's just like a little piece of that story in passing to the happy ending, really, that the Buddha got there first. He may have killed his mother. He was intending to kill his mother, but the Buddha interceded, and Gulimala goes on to be a fully awakened being. But I was, I was like, wait, wait, wait. His mom went for him. That fearlessness of a mama to go, wait, there's some good in this human, and I'm going to see what I can do, even though I might risk my life doing it. Right? That fierce love, motherly love that we connect with. The possibility that feels to me like it's the strongest life force energy we have. And then some of these other, some other Western teachers I often remember bring to mind. Ani Tenzin Palmo is a Tibetan teacher, still teaching, I believe, um, leading a monastery in Nepal. Not sure if that's the right location, but I think so. She ordained at 21, just three months after taking this spiritual quest to Asia. And it's just a, a force of resolve, you know, just that commitment to say yes to a life of life in robes after such a, a short time practicing. Can you imagine being a practitioner for three months and then coming in contact with the teacher who you were really inspired by and saying yes to a lifetime? of ordination, which is what she did. And not only that, but for 12 years, she decided to live in a cave. And when asked about her experience living in the cave, I've heard, I heard in an interview she said something like, those were the best years of my life. I loved living. I loved the cave. <laughs> she told, there's a book, she wrote a book about living in the cave. And she talks about you know, having to dig out, out of the snow, to get out of the cave. And just that suffocating feeling of being snowed in, in your tiny cave. Can't, I don't know. But the resolve to find the limits of what's workable. To continue to expand the limits of what's workable to consider that all things are workable, all experiences, even the experience of death, the possibility of death and our own mortality, doesn't need to be feared. So I bring to mind Ani Tinson Palmo often. We need to remember that it's possible for this heart to have that kind of resolve, even if it's the resolve to 
not move during a sit when the body feels like that's the only solution. Just a deep breath and remembering her in that cave for three years on silent retreat, but 12 total years. Sometimes it's enough to go like, okay, that possibility lives in that heart, and it's also available right here in this heart. This great little poem by Hafiz. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So maybe just take a moment where you are. Close your eyes if you would. Just asking, what, what are the energetic forces that your heart needs? to expand the limits of what's workable, to connect with that sense of confidence or faith. Maybe it's the tenderness of generosity. Or the fierceness of resolve. Connecting with whatever flows through your heart. Noticing if there's an image in mind, somebody or something that represents that force. Somebody or something that you can borrow from. Thanks, everybody, for your kind attention. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.